Amen. Thank you, Bob. So, uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, we are continuing in our series uh, that we're doing this summer on the incommunicable attributes of God. Uh, and that's a big word. What does that mean? It means that there are ways we can be like God. We can share his, in his person and character. And then there are ways that we can't be like him. Uh, there are ways that he is unlike us. And we're talking about those things, the way that God is different from us, the parts of his godness that belong to him alone. Because in order to be like him, we have to first know that we're not like him. Being more godly, that is more godlike, means becoming more human. That's what we've said over and over again this summer. And so this is a really a great series. I've heard from a number of you that you've enjoyed it, that it's, it's helping you, and that, 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 that makes me happy, because that's why we do this. But I really think it's a great series, whether you're a Christian or not. Uh, you know, whether you're you know, a believer, or maybe you're here and you don't, you don't know what you believe, or you're trying to figure out what you believe. And if so, if that's you, then we're, we're glad you're here, and we, we want you to be here. We hope... Uh, that we are people who are hospitable to people who are questioning and, and pondering the faith. And here's our hope for you, that God would matter to you more than before because you were here, that he would um, seem more relevant to you, that you would take him more seriously because of the way that we talk about what we know of him. And the word in the Bible for what I'm talking about there is the word glory. And it's a, it's a familiar word. We know, what, we know what this means. Glory refers to God's weight, to his significance, to his bigness. And that is our goal for you, that God would be bigger to you for being here this morning. But if you're here and you're a Christian, or if you're here and you're just part of us, it's the same goal. That the way to get unstuck spiritually is to have some kind of breakthrough of God's glory, to get more of God's glory, for, for more of his weight and significance to, to land on, on your heart, for him to, be, him to become more and more real to you, become bigger and bigger to you, and that's what we're after there too. There's a scene in Prince Caspian's, um, C.S. Lewis's book in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia series where Lucy has not seen Aslan the lion for a long time, and of course she's the one that loves him the most. And uh, when she finally sees him, he seems bigger to her than the last time she saw him. And he asked to, she's asking him, what's happened? Have you grown? He says, no, no, dear one, I, I, don't, I'm, I can't get any bigger than I am. He says, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that, that's it. That's what we're after, that growing in faith means that God becomes bigger. That's where the breakthrough comes. And so we're talking about the attributes of God that reveal his bigness to us, these incommunicable attributes. And this morning we come to uh, talking about God's self-sufficiency, that God is sufficient in and of himself. Okay, and you'll see in your worship folder, we're going to look at Acts chapter 17, and, and then from Jesus' own words in John chapter 5, and uh, those are printed for you in the worship folder. So as I read, you can follow along. It'll also be on the screen behind me, or grab a Bible and and try to follow along in those two places with us. But we're going to read about the scene of, from Paul's missionary endeavors in the city of Athens, and then Jesus' own words. So let's read together. Would you read with me? Beginning in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul... Standing in the midst of the Areopagus, 
I got that right, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God, listen, to this, is, this is such good theology of, of what God is really like. Listen here. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought, to think, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold and silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then Jesus who really models what we're going to be describing this morning that should be true of us. In John chapter 5, he says this, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And let's just stop there. This is God's word. So if we uh, had a doctrine for the sermon this morning, if you wanted me to summarize really what I hope that you'll walk away from what I would like to, to look at in the scriptures together this morning, it would be this. There's an irony, okay? Um, it would be God doesn't need us, but he wants us. We don't want him, but we need him. Think about that for a minute. God doesn't need us, but the, but the wonderful truth is that he wants us. The sad reality of our lives is that though we do not want him, we'd rather be without him. We desperately need him. And that is really the interplay that's happening here. And so here's what we want to do. We want to follow the same pattern we've been following for these weeks in this series. You're going to see there are four points in the outline that I've given you. And first, we just want to see, uh, we want to turn our attention and eyes to the Lord what do we learn about him in this passage? What do we find here that causes us to praise him? And I think it is that he is needed by all but needed, needful of nothing. That's what we mean by self-sufficiency. Secondly, instead of glorying in that, we envy it, we want it for ourselves, we grasp for this same kind of independence and self-sufficiency that belongs to only God and that is his by right alone. Thirdly, then, we want to turn towards repentance to say, well, then if we realize all the wrongness of the way that we go about trying to be like him, what does it look like for us to really embrace the limits of our creatureliness, uh, realizing that we, he may not be needy, but we are, and every need is the expression of some kind of limit. And to just embrace that and to say it's okay. And the reason it's okay is because of what we learn in the gospel, where in John chapter 5, Jesus really is both the example and the power for what it looks like for us to live in dependence as creatures who do have needs and are needful of the one who in himself has no needs whatsoever. 
That's where we want to go this morning, okay? So starting with God and seeing the way we grasp to be like him in wrong ways. Thirdly, gracious humanness and embracing our limits, empowered by the gospel to do so, okay? So let's just start with adoration then. And let's define what exactly we mean by this attribute. We've talked about God's self-sufficiency and how does it lead us to worship? And so I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag, but my definition of self-sufficiency is this, is that God is needed by all but needful of nothing, it's the phrase I want to keep coming back to over and over again. He is needed by all, but needful of nothing. And you see this in Acts 17. So look there in verses 24 and 25 again. We're told, let's just read it one more time, that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, <clears throat> excuse me, and everything. And so we see there that God made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, giving to all of mankind life and breath and everything, we're told. And then down in verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. It goes on to say, he is needed by all, needful of nothing, needed by all. God is not served by human hands. He does not need us. He doesn't create us because he was lonely and needed someone to love the success of his purposes in the world today or at any time doesn't rest in our hands. He doesn't need you to accomplish the purposes that he set out to accomplish, but we need him. Listen to A.W. Tozer. I've told you I've been reading his book uh, called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's really, really great. And on this, he says this. It's kind of long, so hang in there with me. He says, God has no voluntary relation to everything he has made. Excuse me, he has a voluntary relation to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. His interest arises in us. It arises not from any need that we supply, nor from any completeness we bring to him who is complete in himself. The word necessary is completely foreign to God. We're all human beings, listen to this, we're all human beings suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. For those owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their life. So were every man on earth to become an atheist, it could not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. The perfect the, uh, the, the, the description of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, he says, that is precisely what we see. 20th century theology has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to him. But the truth is that God is no greater for our being, nor would he be less if we did not exist. Okay, summarizing all of that, we could say this, that what we learn is that on the one hand, God is, God is complete and perfect in himself. And because he's complete and perfect in himself, then secondly, he is inexhaustible and overflowing towards all that he has made. That's what we're talking about this morning. So he's complete and perfect in himself. The old systematic theologies talk about God's blessedness. Our confession of faith says that he has all life and glory and goodness and blessedness in and of himself. And you know what that word blessed, blessed means, right? Hashtag blessed, right? What's it mean? It means happy, fortunate, um, you know, 
satisfied, content. God is happy, content, and satisfied in and of himself. He doesn't need anything outside of himself to be happy. God is the most happy, joyful, overflowing being in the universe. He is completely content and satisfied within the three persons of the Trinity. And we were made to find happiness outside of ourselves. We are restless until we find the thing that can fill up all the emptiness and need inside, but not God. He is not constrained by any discontent or need. He doesn't need anything outside of himself to be happy. Which means, in all that he does... He acts out of the overflow of joy, uh, you know, of his boundless self-sufficiency. In the Bible, God's will and God's pleasure are the same thing because he has no other reason to do something other than the fact that he delights to do it. Everything God does is his joy. Everything he does is an expression of his delight. And that's good news for us. Last week, we talked about the scene in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, and there, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with that scene, God reveals his name to Moses, I am who I am. And James Montgomery Boyce, who's the longtime pastor at, at the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, said that the name I am means that God is inexhaustible, that he never runs out of power, that he never runs out of love or patience or kindness or any of that. He's like the Energizer Bunny. Can I, you, you remember that? You want to feel old? You know when that ad came out? 1987. I, I read that this week. I was like, oh, my God, 1987. Nothing outlasts the Energizer Bunny. Finish it. He keeps going and going and going. Yes. Eventually, he runs out and needs the batteries replaced. But not the Lord. He is a God of infinite supply, constantly overflowing, a self-contained source of perpetual and perfect sustenance who himself creates and sustains all things, but is created and sustained by none. Listen to Jen Wilkins. She says, from all eternity, he is perfectly provided for in and of himself, needless of aid, unflagging in strength, never hungry or thirsty, experiencing no lack, nothing and no one outside of himself offers aid to him. Now, if that's true, how does that lead us to worship? And let me just mention a few things before uh, we, we move on to the second point. The first is that this means, and it's good news, this, you should rejoice in this, uh, God is happy. You with me? God is happy. Uh, and we are not the cause of his happiness. And that's good news too, by the way. Instead, Everything we experience, if you're going on vacation this summer and you went to the mountains or the beach, whether it's all of the beauty and the bounty of the world we live in and we experience in one another, all of that is the overflow of the joy that he has in himself. God is happy, and that's good. Because he's happy, he's also generous. He is overflowing with goodness and mercy towards all that he has made, but especially towards his people who are the special object of his Delight, And not only is he happy and, and generous, but that, but that means that the goal of everything that he does is our happiness, to unite us in happiness with him in the way that he is happy in everything that he does and has made. Think about that. To bring us into his joy. That's what Jesus says over and over again he's trying to do with his, with his guys. And that's what eternal life is, by the way, to, to, to have uh, an experience of the 
bounty of the overflowing joy of the fellowship of the persons of the Trinity and to come into that. And not just in heaven, but even now. We can experience that now is what the Bible says. Now, do you, do you, do you see why those are things we should, we should joyfully celebrate? Are you with me? Hello, are you all awake? Right, we should joyfully celebrate God's happiness. Isn't it great to be with someone who is just happy and to not feel like they need you to be happy? Isn't that great? Like, oh, I can, just, I can just kind of be here and not worry about it. I can feed off of their happiness instead of having to think that if I'm going to mess this up somehow, right? These are things for us to rejoice in. We should joyfully celebrate his self-sufficiency, his happiness, his overflowing generosity, and so forth. It really is something to praise, but instead we envy it. And we grasp for it, for ourselves. We don't want to live in a world, think about this. We don't want to live in a world where the God I've just described is in control. We think the world would be better off in our hands. (laughs) I just chuckle at that. Think about the lunacy of that. I know y'all, y'all are great people, but I don't want you in control of the world, I can tell you that. We would rather, I would rather live in a world where I am in control than the one I just described. It's sheer lunacy. But that is sin in its concentrated essence. Remember what we said from A.W. Tozer last week? A moral being created to worship before the throne of God, sitting instead on the throne of his own selfhood, and from that elevated position declaring, I am. Sin is the desire for autonomy, the desire to live all on our own by ourselves. We learn in Romans 1 that it is an exchanging of the glory of God Uh, the glory of who he really is for some sort of lie and then inserting ourselves into the vacuum that is left when we make him out to be something lesser than he actually is. Uh, Before every act of sin, we're told in the Bible, there is an intellectual, emotional process. There's a malfunction of believing where we reimagine God as something lesser than he in truth is and then we simultaneously exalt ourselves into his place. So Paul says to the men of Athens, look there, verse 29, he says, he wants us to be very careful. He says, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or in silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. In other words, God, the true God, is not like the idols the people made for themselves of stone and wood and precious metal. Those idols were little domesticated house gods that could be manipulated and controlled. Uh, their imagined gods, these people needed them, but they didn't love them. That was true of the idols of the ancient world. They needed the people, but they didn't love them. The ancient peoples believed that their gods were dependent upon them for, dependent upon their sacrifices for food, for example. That their powers and their divinity were, um, came from the devotion and the prayers of their worshipers. Now, and before you write that off as ancient superstition, and think with me for just a minute, how many times, I thought about this, this was my repentance this week, how many times have you acted as if what you really believe is something like, you know, what would God do without me? You know, moms, I know you think that sometimes, don't you? Like, man, if this family was in the hands of that man that I'm married to, holy cow, we'd be in trouble. Right? Those of you who run businesses, I mean, what would God do without me? We'd have to shut the doors. Whatever it might be. So don't write it off as ancient superstition. We do it too. And these gods that, need, didn't, that needed them but didn't love them, 
they were vain and capricious and petty. I mean, think of the stories in Greek mythology. I took, that was my favorite class in college, believe it or not, that fine, uh, fine education I got at Florida State University. Um, you know, the, just the mythology, I, I've always been fascinated by these stories, but they really are pretty ridiculous, aren't they? That the gods in these stories are motivated by jealousy and revenge. I mean, if you, you know, you look at somebody wrong and they'll smite you for generations and stuff, you know, like that. So ancient peoples didn't believe that the gods loved them. They, they, they knew them to be capricious and petty, and they were, they were constantly afraid of f- offending them because, you know, they would act in revenge and so forth. Now, modern people, I think, think of God much the same way. And what we're told there in verse 30 is that it is ignorance. In other words, it is a, it's a lack of knowing. It's, it's, that's what that word means. And the true God, what he's after, he calls for repentance. Do you see that verse 30? He wants us to move towards repentance, which is a change of the way we think about him that leads to a change uh, in our hearts, that leads to a change in the way we would live our lives because he is not like that at all. But we prefer to think of God this way, truth be told. We just can't believe that he could really be who he says he is. And that's Genesis chapter 3. The lying whisper of the serpent in our ears. If God is not who we need him to be, then we must be so in his place. And so in unbelief, we grasp to, like him, be needful of all and, excuse me, be needed by all and needful of nothing. That's true of him, but we want it to be true of ourselves, autonomy. And autonomy means no need because every need is a limit. Every need is a limit. Think about it. If you're needy, then you're not in control of your life. If you're dependent upon anything outside of yourself, then you can't ensure things go the way you want them to. So we want this self-sufficiency to be needed by all, to be in this position of being needed by all, but being needful of nothing ourselves. I mean, it feels so good to be needed, doesn't it? Don't look at me like that. I know you believe that. Doesn't it feel good to be needed? I mean, when you're needed, you feel strong and important and in charge and in control and godlike. When you're needy, You feel like a failure and weak and out of control and all too human. Man, man, if you, some of you know me, some of you don't. If you knew me, you'd know this is so true of me. It is a particular outcome of my story. I I, I spent some some time with a counselor last summer and don't like gasp at that. There's no shame in that. Everybody should go to counseling, really. Uh, and so I, I was on sabbatical, and I got to spend some time with a counselor last summer, and one of the things he helped me to discover about myself is that in my childhood and adolescence, uh, there, there was no room, and I did this to myself mostly, there was no room for me to have any needs. And so I learned not to have any needs of my own and just to spend all of my time taking care of everybody else's needs. And it, and it carried over into adulthood. It's probably why I became a pastor to begin with. Most of us do for really wrong reasons. And then that's why most guys burn out is because they're running on things that aren't the, the, the good things to be doing, which is why I ended up in a counselor's office last summer. You follow me? Right? You know, it's just the thing. So it is, uh, it's so uncomfortable for me to ask for help. It feels so wrong for me to need. And it's the way I'm particularly broken. So I, and what I do is, of course, I bring my brokenness into my relationships and then I break them. 
And so the brokenness in my relationship with God, and I'm just being vulnerable here for a minute, is that I don't trust him. I don't believe he loves me when I'm weak. It's not okay to have needs. And so then in my relationships with my friends, I don't believe, uh, I don't communicate need. I mean, it can be really hard. It's really hard to be my friend. My friends tell me all the time it's really hard to be my friend. Because what I want more than anything else, and this is why I'm taking this moment to do this, because this really resonates with me, what I want more than anything else is to be needed by all and needful of no one, because I am. And that's the engine of my life. So how do you know then, when you've stopped relying on God and others, when you're trying to live independently of him, and of everyone else, and it reveals itself in a number of different ways. With, with God seeking independence from him, let me just mention a few of his bullet points and we're going to move on. Uh, here's some of the warning, kind of the dashboard warning lights in your life that you can be aware of. The first is prayerlessness, okay? Self-reliance destroys prayer, and so what we do is we live life doing instead of asking. We pray not because we're needy. This was really, um, Bob, I think this was really insightful to me. Someone said it this way this week. We don't pray because we're needy. We pray so that we don't have to be needy. So that we can, so that we can get quickly, as quickly as possible, get from God the thing that we need so we don't have to feel needy anymore. That's the motivation to pray rather than just, uh, you know, we pray, in other words, we pray to problem solve, not to connect with the Father in our need. Forgetfulness is another thing, a lack of gratitude for God, God's past faithfulness, which carries over into the present in anxiety and fear about the future. Or no rest is another, no margin, no recreation, no Sabbath, overworking, poor rhythms of physical well-being, of exercise, and sleep. Your sleep reveals your theology. Your sleep patterns reveals your theology. Or no confession, no honest admission of your limits and failures, but instead blame shifting or defending yourself. Or you just become too adult. Do you know what I mean by that? Remember the kingdom belongs to little children? Too adult, too serious, too much responsibility, not enough playfulness. We were at a wedding last weekend, and there, these, a bunch of college kids were just having a great time on the dance floor. And uh, somebody was like, get out there. I was like, no, I don't do that. Like, I've never done that. Like, you don't understand. I, like, skipped that whole part of my life right there. I've never even had that experience. <laughs> it's, again, because it's just the way I'm broken. It's not a good thing. I'm too adult. And it really is a sense of self-sufficiency. But when you're trying to live independently of others, then, it reveals itself in a few ways there, too. In isolation and failing to prioritize relationships with others and neglecting community and privatizing your life. This is one of the things that just drives me crazy as a pastor is we, we want to be a church that cares for people, but a lot of times uh, it's hard because a lot of people, they don't want to make their needs known to others. They hide their struggles and refuse help from other people. No accountability, right? Hiding your sins from others instead of confessing them and seeking forgiveness or overperforming, doing your work and everybody else's work, too, and taking responsibility for stuff that's not your responsibility or whatever it might be. All of these things are ways that you can say, oh, see, yeah, I'm caught there. This is true of me, and I believe it's true of every single one of us in the room. We desire to be like God, needed by all, needful of nothing. But the truth is the exact opposite. We need to come towards the end here if we can. With God, with God we are needed for nothing, and we need him for everything. He doesn't need us, but he does love us. And the American story particularly celebrates independence. I mean, we've been setting off fireworks for 250 years to remember and to rejoice in our national autonomy, right? 
This is so imprinted upon who we are as a people. You have to understand that. It's a particular struggle for us. We tend to view dependence as a sign of failure, a flaw of some kind, a lack of proper planning uh, or ambition. I mean, and this national ideology gets baptized into theologies that interpret physical, financial, or spiritual need as a sign that God has removed his blessing because of sin. And it's not just the prosperity gospel. We have a bad theology of need. We think if we need something, then something's wrong. When in fact, it's just the opposite. We are not needy because of sin. We are needy by divine design. In Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall of man, before sin ever came into the world, where everything was still as it was supposed to be, the man and the woman were created to need. They depended upon the Lord for breath in their lungs and for food in their bellies and for water and land and light. They were created dependent so that their need, in their need, they might turn to the source of all that is needful and worship him. They not only needed God, they needed one another. After the man was created, he was lonely. Do you remember? He named all the animals and he looked around and he said, but there's no one for me. He was without a companion. He was incomplete. So God made the woman to complete him. The man wasn't lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends and for loved ones is not the result of sin. We were made to need one another because we were made in the image of God who is a community of persons. So like God, we need others to love and work with and talk to and share life with. He just has that within himself. All that means this, that the only way forward is to learn dependence. Listen to this sentence. From Jen Wilkins, she says, sanctification is the process of learning increasing dependence, not autonomy. In other words, growing in weakness, embracing our limits, doing less, not more, because we are creatures and not God himself. The passage in Acts clearly teaches that the true God made the world but is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. But we, we are full of needs. I mean, I'm thinking of the phrase, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. You see that there? In other words, our existence, our breath, our physical, uh, intellectual, and emotional functioning, in all of that, we are completely dependent upon him for all of it. So the very first thing that we have to do, the very first thing we have to do is to embrace being human by admitting how desperately we need him, that, that our desires are all messed up, that we do not want him, but we need him. We do not want the, the thing I'm sorry, let me say it this way. We do not want most the thing we need most. That is our big problem. That is the center point of everything that is a struggle in our lives is that we do not want most the thing we need most. I mean, look at the text again. Verse 27 says that every human heart needs to seek and find God as its ultimate source of joy and hope and peace. We need him the way the flower needs the sunshine and the rain. It's the sunshine of his face Right, It's the sunshine of his face and the gentle showers of his mercy that cause us to open up like the flower and face the world with courage and faith. Uh, Patrick and Molly actually wrote a little song that has this line that I love. It says, we silly humans are the first and only breed to forfeit our survival by refusing what we need. And then in the song, uh, I, I love, they go on, they, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to make much of them, but I just was really caught by this this week, where it's just in the song, it just says, um, point, point my face 
toward the sun like the flowers. It's really quite simple what I've made to do to just be me loving you. In other words, it's just a sense of this is what we were made for, to just soak in the sun of God's love for us. That everything else is just uh, an overdoing. And listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me just say to you, you were made for God. He is the fuel you're designed to burn. St. Augustine said that we're restless until we find our rest in him, and there will be no end to your searching until you find him. But spiritual growth happens the same way. It's a process of leaning on him more and on yourself less, which means embracing your limits and not trying to break through them. It also means leaning on others more because the way God provides for us is through the kindness and generosity of others. Listen, depending on God means depending on others. Living vulnerably with one another, expecting whatever weakness we find in ourselves to be made up for by someone else's strength. That's the way the church works. It's why you need a people. Uh, we don't hide our weaknesses from one another. We, you, we were made for community. We were made in the image of God who's a community of persons. We were made, not made to not need others. That's neither human nor godly. It's a sign of spiritual weakness, not personal strength. And what's amazing is it's not the way the... Whoop! This thing is janky. Sorry. It's not the way... See, that's totally... There are evil forces in the world, guys. Man. Yeah. It is neither human nor godly to live not needing others. And what's fascinating and amazing is it is not the way God lived when he took on our humanity. So really quick, we need to finish up, but come to John chapter 5. And it really is a remarkable passage. We're going to read it this week in CBR. And I'm not joking with you when I tell you, I look forward to reading John 5 every year. Just when we get there, I just slow down a little bit. I just love what you learn of Jesus there. But look at there again in verse uh, 20, 20, uh, let me get this right. In verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now imagine you were in a restaurant and you overheard someone in the booth behind you say, I don't do anything by myself, I only do what I see my dad doing. How old would you assume that person was? And then imagine you turned around and saw that it was a man in his 30s. What would you think of him? It's a very childlike statement, isn't it? Surprising. Because remember, this is the one whom has all life in himself. This is the one who possesses such power that he can create galaxies and stars and planets and mountain ranges just with a spoken word. And here he's saying, I don't do anything on my own. I don't do anything by myself. I don't do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now why? What is this? What's going on here? Jesus is showing us what it is like to be truly human. This is how Adam was supposed to live. In the garden, Adam acted on his own apart from God and everything unraveled. And so here's Jesus, the second Adam, coming to succeed where the first Adam failed, to live in absolute dependence and trust in God for all things. And that is why he is not only our example, But he's also our savior. His obedience makes it possible for us to be made right with God. He lived the life we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died on the cross as a punishment for our sins. And now by the Holy Spirit, he makes it possible for us to obey him as he did and walk in fellowship with God the way the man and the woman were made to do so in the garden at the beginning. That's the gospel. 
That is the gospel, but I want you to notice one more thing before we're done, and it's that John 5 also gives us some insight into how Jesus was able to do this, able to live this way. That Remember, Jesus didn't go about life this way because he was God, but because he was the perfect man. And that's important to say because if that's true, then it's possible for us to live this way too, being perfected by him by the Holy Spirit's power. And so verse 19 again, look there, I want you to see the connection. He says, the son of man can do nothing of his own accord. And then in verse 20, he says, for, in other words, because, here's the explanatory, here's how he's able to do what he just said in verse 19. The son of man can do nothing of his own accord, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. In other words, Jesus was able to live in complete dependence upon God and others too, because he knew that he was loved. He didn't take care of himself. He didn't have to take care of himself because he knew that his father would take care of him. He didn't have to be in control of everything in his life because he knew the father who is overflowing with generosity and goodness was in control of everything. You see? I said at the beginning that I hope God gets really big for you. Actually, that's only part of it, really. It's really when you come to see that this really big God that we're talking about is also, also has a big heart. It's this really big God is also a loving God. He is not far from each one of us, as Acts 17, 27 says. He's come near, he's come down, he's humble and kind, and that makes him even bigger. A big God who loves is even bigger. And that's where the glory comes from, is where you see this big God who loves in a big way, so that the bigger God gets, the bigger his love gets in Christ for you. And that's where that's where the glory comes. And so let me just say this. Three reasons I think that we can be confident as Jesus was in the Father's love for us. And the first is that God doesn't need us and therefore that must mean he loves us. Secondly, self-sufficiency doesn't mean that God has no needs. That would make him cold and impersonal. And I want to stay away from that. Instead, Thomas Traherne, a 17th century English poet, put it like this. He said that God's self-sufficiency is not so much that he has no needs but it's that he has no unmet needs, that his blessedness is not that he, he, he is not having no wants, it's having no unsupplied wants. He is eternally full and overflowing, but part of that eternal fullness is being full and overflowing of want. God doesn't need us, but he wants us. He's full of longing for us. You know how I know? Just look to the links to which he was willing to go to have us, sending his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer and die for our sins, the tearing of his own heart for the greater joy of having you and I forever. So when you see that, when you see that God doesn't need you, but he wants you, in some mysterious way, that is the gospel mystery. When you see that he doesn't need you at all, but he wants you, that's when you start to cry out to him. That's when you want to cry out to him. Father, I need you. Every hour I need you. And that's the place to be. That's what it means to be truly human, to, be, to live right there. But man, we need help, don't we? And so let's pray that he would help us to embrace that. Can we pray? So Father, thank you that it is true that we can rest in your love for us. What a, what a beautiful thing that the one who hung the galaxies when he came to earth said, I don't have to do anything for myself. I don't have to provide for myself. When I'm hungry, I don't have to zap a stone and make it bread because I have a father in heaven who's taking care of every need and I can just rest. I can just open myself up like the flower does to the sun. 
to receive from him everything that I need. That's the promise that he's made to us. And we can be even more confident because of the work of this one in dying for us to reconcile us to the Father so that now there is no bad blood. There is no, there is no uh, relational clutter between myself and him. The way has been made for me to come to him, to receive from him everything that I need. His heart has been opened to me because of the work of Jesus. That is what we celebrate this morning. And yet we would turn away from all of that good news. We would, we would rather live in a world where we are in control than in a world where the one that I just described is in control. It's such folly. It's such idiocy. It's such foolishness. We're fools. And so help us, Father, in these moments to repent well so that we might come out of the exhaustion and the burnout and the sadness and the, the grief of trying to be everything for everyone else and to need nothing from you or anyone. And instead find the joy and the peace and the hope and the rest of just crying out to you to say, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. You're my all, you're my righteousness, you're my everything. Put that song in our hearts. Maybe for the first time as an expression of our faith in you, but maybe for the thousandth time as a renewal of that faith in these last moments we have together. Open our mouths that we may sing that to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The thing, uh, the thing our God desires the most from us is not our strength, but our need. He delights in us giving to him uh, empty hands so that he might fill them. And so we go from this place being sent by him to not just sing that song here in this moment, but to sing it all week. That is the song of our lives, right? And so we go singing it fully confident that this great God who is himself needed, needful of nothing but needed by all is overflowing with love and generosity to us. And so take your empty hands and give them to him that he might fill them, not just in this moment, but this week as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.